2 Samuel chapter 8. You can all be seated. We're going to try to do 8 and 9 tonight. One chapter is going to be about what God does for David, and then the next chapter is going to be about what David does for someone else. And so it's really cool because the, the theme of, of 2 Samuel is a heart after God. And so, you know, we see God's heart in one chapter, and then we're going to see David having a heart after God in the next heart. So this all stems from the fact that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised David that he would cause Israel to dwell in a place of their own and that their enemies would no longer oppress them. And so that means, obviously, David's got to do something about the, you know, the Philistines. Um, they're no longer occupying Israeli territory, but Philistia's still right there next to them in land that God gave to them. And then there's a few other places that are creating problems for Israel as well. And so as we look in chapter 8 and see God's loyal love to David and giving him victory over his enemies, we're going to then see David's heart after God to show that same loyal love to Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, in chapter 9. And so may we leave tonight, you know, knowing God's loyal love for us in order that we might share his heart by giving that same devotion to, to, to others. So chapter 8, verse 1, it says, And after this it came to pass that David smote the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Amma out of the hand of the Philistines. And he smote Moab and measured them in a line, casting them down to the ground. Even with two lines measured, he put to death, and with one full line to keep alive. And so the Moabites became David's servant and brought gifts. We start here in verse 1 with the Philistines. Uh, after this, so after the events of chapter 7 where the Lord promises David that he's going to even expand his kingdom further and create a place for his people um, where they can dwell in peace, well, it says right after that, David smote the Philistines. He, the word there, smote, means to strike down to ruin. This is not just a, a, a uh, victory in one battle. This is a complete victory. And so it says that he subdued them as a result. This is interesting because from the end of the, of the book of Judges all the way to 2 Samuel, the Old Testament narrative has revolved around the Israeli-Philistine conflict, right? I mean, this has been going on for hundreds of years in Israel. But now David smashes them so solidly, we, we get few details. It just says Israel wins, you know? And, and then, you know, now they're subject, they're subdued. They become a vassal state uh, of Israel where they're David's servants. And it mentions little details of how this happened. David took Metheg Amah. Uh, Metheg Amah uh, is the phrase, the bridal of the mother. First um, Chronicles 18 verse 1 identifies this city as the city of Gath, uh, the mother city in that sense, the mothership. Uh, it was the most important of the Philistine royal cities. David, of course, remember he had taken refuge there at one point in time when he was on the run from Saul, and he served the king of Gath. But now, the mother city of the Philistines, and it says uh, in First Chronicles 18.1, it says, and all the towns, so all of its daughter towns, all the towns of the Philistines now serve David. Now, of course, we ask the question, well, wait a second, I thought they're supposed to wipe out everybody in the land, right? Why does David make them his subjects and not wipe them out? Well, the Philistines aren't Canaanites. They migrated to the promised land region uh, from southern Europe. And, and God, he wanted Israel to be at peace with their neighbors. And he actually gives instructions in Deuteronomy. If, if you go to a land and, and you, you know, or, or if you have enemies that are around you and, and you defeat them, 
then you treat them differently than you would the rest of the Canaanites. And so God wanted them to be at peace with their neighbors. Of course, the problem is that their neighbors took the land God promised to them, and so David had to fight them. Uh, And so they become his subjects. In verse 2, we see a little bit of a different situation. David smote Moab. Now, that's very confusing to me because where did David send his parents when he was on the run from Saul? He took him to the king of Moab's palace, right? And that's where they lived. David's great-grandmother, Ruth, was from Moab. So it seems kind of odd that this relationship would all of a sudden be strained. What happened to their relationship that caused a war? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. We don't know. One rabbinical teaching says that the king of Moab murdered David's parents to curry favor with Saul. Um, They bring up the fact, for example, that David's parents are never mentioned after David leaves them in Moab, and they aren't. Uh, so that is a possibility, and if, it, if that's true, then it makes David's actions after he wins the, the war a bit more understandable. It says that he uh, measured them with a line, uh, and he put, uh, basically had them all lay down on the ground, and he, two-thirds, he put this big, huge you know, yarn across or whatever, and two-thirds were executed, and one-third were allowed to live. And so the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. They became, again, a vassal kingdom. He conquers Moab. So he's conquered Philistia. He's conquered Moab. Uh, I understand if you read this and you think, man, that, that sounds horrible what David did. David's a, he's a, he's a warrior, <clears throat> that's, that's, and that's how things were done back then. I'm not saying God was okay with that. It just explains that's what happened. Verse 3, we see another place that David's going to conquer. It says, David smote also Hadad-Ezer, the son of Rechab, king of Zobah, as he went to recover his border at the river Euphrates. By the way, there's more to the story. Before we get into Zobah, there's more to the story about Moab. (laughs) Moab, if you remember, they are the descendants of Lot, right? And so God gave them land just south or just east of the Dead Sea, just south of the land he promised to Israel, right? And so the Moabites, when Israel came around to, to uh, come to the promised land, God told them and said, don't fight them. They're, they're, they're your, you know, far distant relatives, okay? And I've given that land to the Moabites. Don't fight them. And so they went to the Moabites and said, hey, can, can we buy some food off you and stuff? And the Moabites completely rebuffed them. Fine. Well, then Israel goes around them, and when they get around them to the north, they don't threaten Moab at all. The king of Moab, Balak, he gets paranoid and about the Israelis being on his northern border. And so he hires Balaam, the seer, the soothsayer, his witch doctor, to come curse him. And he makes an alliance with the Midianites. You know how that story goes. Well, that wasn't it. After Israel went, Israel defeats them in a battle because of all the mess that Moab, Moab called, caused with them, but doesn't take their land, and they go on to the promised land. Well, we look in Judges, and the very first, when Othniel is the judge of Israel, Caleb's uh, son-in-law, after he is done judging Israel, Israel falls away from the Lord, and the Moabites, they take advantage of it. They invade. And so God raises up Ehud, and Israel conquers Moab. Do they take their land? No. They just conquer them to kick them out of their land, and then they go away, and they say, you stay in your land, we'll stay in our land. And then we see another time in the future that here are the Moabites coming again. These were constant enemies to the nation of Israel. And so when we read about David executing two-thirds of them, these are people that just keep coming back against Israel. What are you going to do at that point? David says, I'm going to make it so they can't come back for a long time. Again, I'm not saying 
God told him to do that, but I understand why. At some point, if someone keeps coming after you, you got to do something about it. Now, verse 3, sorry, that was extra. <laughs> David smote Hadad Azer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah, as he went to recover his border, his lands at the river Euphrates. Um, Hadad Ezer is a title, it's not this guy's name, it means the storm god is my helper. Uh, Hadad was the storm god of the, the Syrian. There's like an Aramean League of Nations at this point. Now, Syria wasn't a big nation at this point. Eventually, they conquer all these guys, and, and they become you know, a pretty big kingdom. But Zobah is to the north of what we would think of as Syria in the Bible, Damascus. Um, and in 1 Samuel 14, 47, it records that the kingdom of Zobah was one of those that Saul went on a rampage uh, against after Samuel told him that God would take the kingdom from him. Remember when Saul came and he sacrificed before Samuel got there, and Samuel came to him and said, what are you doing? He said, well, I, I, the people, they were leaving in droves. We're already outnumbered by the Philistines. I had to do something. And he's like, why didn't you just do what the Lord said? And so, you know, he says, all right, I'm out. And, and remember Saul grabs his, the hem of his tunic, tunic and it, it tears, and he says, God's, just as you've torn my tunic, God's going to tear the kingdom from you. Well, Saul said, yeah, watch. Watch what I have to say about that. And he goes on this rampage against everybody around him. Zobah is one of those kingdoms that he goes on a rampage against. So apparently either Israel or one of Israel's allies has land that was taken from them. And so the king says, I'm going to come get it back. And so he comes to take his land back. And it mentions it's at, at the river Euphrates, which is, uh, this is the eastern part of middle Syria. That's a long way from Israel. So again, I'm, I'm kind of curious how David got involved. Um, Either Saul took land there, but that seems odd. It's possible that Maacah, which was uh, a land north and east of Israel, uh, to which David, we already know, he married one of their daughters. In fact, um, Absalom, the son that we're going to meet, the, the wonderful son that we're going to meet, uh, that, that tries to take the kingdom from David, he is, uh, his mom is the daughter of the king of Maacah. He actually goes and stays there after he murders his brother. This is a beautiful family, by the way. You know, murders his brother who raped his sister. Yeah, it's just a mess. And, and so he goes and stays up there for a couple years because he figures if I'm home, dad's going to kill me. And so it's possible that that was land that he took uh, from this guy, Hadad Azer. Um, and so now, you know, he's attacking Maacah to get the land back and David's coming to an ally's defense. I don't know for sure. Whatever the reason, Israel defeated them. Look at verse 4. And David uh, took from him a thousand chariots and seven hundred horsemen and twenty thousand footmen. And David uh, huffed all the chariot horses, but reserved of them a uh, hundred chariots. Um, the word he basically took some captives, uh, and he, it says that he captured, you know, seven hundred horsemen and a thousand chariots, but he. He, he pretty much all the chariots, he, he disables them. The word horses is not in the, people, they read this chapter and like, why did David kill all the horses? What did horses do, you know? And, uh, you know, first he's killing all the Moabites, now he's killing horses. The horses is not in the original text. The word huffed, it, it means to cut the tendon on the back leg of, of an animal, uh, but, but it also is used to disable like a, like a vehicle. And so that's what probably happened here. David 
doesn't take all the spoils. He, he destroys the chariots, saving uh, just a hundred of them to take home. The horses were probably set free or taken back to Israel uh, for non-military purposes. And the reason David doesn't take the horses and the chariots for military purposes is clear because Deuteronomy 17 gives not a whole lot of instructions for kings when Israel has a king. Look over at Deuteronomy 16, 17, verse 16 with me. There, I think there are four or five things that God tells a king he's not supposed to do, and then he gives him two or three things that he's supposed to do. But one of the things he's not supposed to do is in verse 16. But he shall not multiply horses to himself. Why were they not supposed to multiply horses to themselves as kings? Israel was never to have a large cavalry. Rather, they were to trust the Lord for victory in battle. That's interesting because the chariot is kind of the equivalent of like a, like a, a tank today. You know, and I realize that we've got really you know, advanced tanks these days, but that's the equivalent you know, of some type of an armored vehicle like this that can move at great speed and take on a bunch of infantry. And so, why would you not want to have a military advantage? You know, it's funny, you read some commentaries and all like, well, you know, the hilly, you know, places in Israel, it's not conducive to chariots. Lies. If you've never been there, you see all the valleys too, and all the enemies always had chariots. God specifically told them, don't want you to have a large cavalry. Why? I don't want you to trust in your own military superiority. I want you to trust in me for the victory. So God specifically puts Israel at a military disadvantage so they'll always trust in Him. Isn't that fascinating? David will, later on, he will write Psalm 20. And Psalm 20, verse 7, 7 is probably one of the most famous verses. <clears throat> some trust in horses and some in chariots, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Right? You know, when you, you read through Psalm 20, uh, it starts off, the Lord hear you in the day of trouble, the name of the God of Jacob defend you. So what are they supposed to trust in? The name of the Lord our God, His character, His promises, you know, that, that He's faithful to, to defend us, right? So Israel was always to be at this disadvantage. And, and this is a song that David wrote where he says, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we'll remember the name of the Lord our God. David, this reflects his obedience here when he doesn't take the chariots and he sets, either sets the horses free or puts them to non-military use. Now, when David stopped this uh, advance from Hadad-Ezer, uh, this guy's allies in Damascus decided to join the fight. Uh, but that just results in another kingdom, kingdom becoming a vassal kingdom to David. Look at verse 5. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to succor help Hadad-Ezer, king of Zobah, David slew with the Syrians 22,000 men. And so David put, then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus. So, I mean, the garrisons are military towns. So, I mean, Damascus is a massive city. It's probably the oldest city in the world at this point. Um, uh, and, and David, I mean, if you go to Israel and you, you go to the Golan Heights, you know, someone will go, hey, Damascus is that way. <laughs> you can't even see it. This is a far away from Israel. And David has military towns in this sprawling, massive city, you know, right around it. You know, this is, this is mine now, you know. And the Syrians became servants to David, and they brought tribute. They brought gifts. 
And the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. I love that. We're going to see that phrase twice in this chapter. Preserved, it means saved, rescued, delivered. It gives us the impression that they didn't go into this battle with the odds on their side. None of these victories are because of David or Israel's superior military strength. It was God's loyal love for His people, His faithfulness to His promise in 1 Samuel 7.10. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them anymore like they have before. Now, verse 7 And David took the shields of gold that were on the servants of Hadad-Ezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Betah and Berothai, cities of Hadad-Ezer, King David took exceeding much brass. So David, after he defeats Hadad-Ezer when he's invading, the Syrians attack, he defeats them. Then he makes this kind of a triumphant march from Zobah all the way down to Syria back to Jerusalem, and he takes all these the spoils of war. These uh, golden shields, as you might imagine, gold is a soft metal. You don't make shields to use in battle out of gold unless you want to get pummeled. And so uh, these are ornamental pieces from his servants, it says. These are high-ranking officials in the king's court. Uh, they are subservient to David now, you know. So ha- David defeated Hadadezer so soundly that he marched into their cities as a conqueror and, and basically took whatever he wanted. And apparently this guy, Hadadezer, wasn't liked by people around him because his northern neighbor sends David a congratulatory congratulatory embassy embassy with gifts. Look at verse 9. When Toi, king of Hamath, Hamath is north of Zobah, which is north of Syria. When Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had smitten all the host of Hadadezer, then Toi sent Joram, his son, unto king David to salute him, to, to bless him, and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and smitten him, for Hadadezer had wars with Toy. And Joram brought him vessels of silver, vessels of gold, and vessels of brass. So uh, this kingdom north of Zobah brings a gift to David saying, thanks for dealing with this guy. He's been a headache to me, you know, with, for me uh, for years. It's very interesting. This guy Joram, that's, a, that's an Israeli name. It means the Lord is exalted. First Chronicles chapter 18, verse 10, lists his name as Hadoram, which means the storm god is exalted, which means that David apparently had some type of influence on this guy that he changed his name to the Lord is exalted. I don't know about you, but that's the kind of influence I want to have upon people, you know, that they've, they're living this way, and then they decide, nope, your God's better, you know, <laughs> and, they, and they, they totally take a different, uh, a different course in their life. Well, Hamath didn't become a vassal nation of David. These are just, this is just a voluntary gift of friendship. And so David takes that gift, and we're going to see here that he takes that and all the other plunder, and he gives it to the Lord, verse 11, which also King David did dedicate unto the Lord. Uh, dedicate means to set apart to special use. Uh, likely, he set it aside for the temple, uh, knowing that even though God told him he couldn't build it, God told him his son would build it. And so he sets aside these funds, this, these materials for the building of the temple, which also David did dedicate unto the Lord with the silver and gold that he had dedicated of all the nations which he subdued. And then it lists them here of Syria, we already covered that, of Moab, we covered that. Oh, the children of Ammon, this is a battle we haven't heard about yet. We're going to find out about it in chapter 10. And of the Philistines and of Amalek. 
again, some other battle, and of the spoil of Hadadezer, son of Rechab, king of Zobah. This was David's habit, basically, is what it's telling us, with all the tribute and all the spoils of war that came. He didn't put it to himself. He, he gave it to the Lord. It was all going to be for the Lord's service. Now, for all these victories that David's had, there is one specific battle that really made David famous. Look at verse 13. And David, King James says, get him a name. <laughs> I like that, get him a name. Uh, it means David made himself famous or he was made famous when he returned from the smiting of the Syrians. So when David got done dealing with the Syrian invasion up there, whatever they were invading, it says he made himself famous with something else he did. And it happened in the Valley of Salt. If you just read this, it looks like it says David fought the Syrians in the Valley of Salt, but that's, there should be a comma or something there, a semicolon something, because in the Valley of Salt is where this famous battle occurs that we'll learn about in a second where it was. It says he slaughtered eight, or defeated 18,000 men there. And verse 14 tells us where it was. He put garrisons in Edom. Now, the Valley of Salt, of course, is a reference to the Dead Sea, and Edom is just southeast of the Dead Sea. Um, so this is not talking about his battle with the Syrians. This is his next battle after returning from the north, the place where he becomes famous. Now, it doesn't give us any details about the battle. It just says David won. Why does this make him famous? Well, turn to Psalm 60, because David writes this psalm after this battle. And I think this will give us a little bit of a clue of just how bad the situation was. <clears throat> Psalm 60. <clears throat> the title to this psalm says, To the chief musician upon uh, Shushanaduth, um, which means it's set to a certain song. I, I, I've never sung the song Shushanaduth, uh, so if you know it, you can teach it to me. Uh, but they knew what it was back then, so that kind of a tune or that key or whatever that means, uh, this song that he writes is set along the same tune. <clears throat> it's a mictum of David, which means it's a teaching. It's meant to, to, for, to make you think about something, to teach. When he strove with Aram Naharaim and with Aram Zobah, when Joab returned, so this is a song David wrote that after they'd had this huge victory up north, and then all of a sudden they find themselves in a really bad situation down south. When Joab returned and smote Edom in the Valley of Salt, 12,000. Um, Joab came down, smote 12,000. Apparently, six more thousand died as well. Uh, the Chronicles tells us that Abishai was responsible for that part. So um, these two guys were, were battle commanders, and it gives us some indication how the fight went. Uh, but we'll cover that when we get to First Chronicles. But I want to look at Psalm 60 here because it's a really cool psalm. Look at what verse 1 says. Oh God, you have cast us off. You have scattered us. You have been displeased. Oh, turn yourself to us again. Whoa. Now, we have no indication about why this happens in Israel, what's going on. But while David's on this campaign up north, all of a sudden he comes back and he finds the nation is a mess. And somehow God has removed his favor from the nation to the point where he says, Lord, you've cast us off and returned to us. Lord, you're gone. We need you to return to us. 
You have made the earth to tremble. You have broken it. Lord, we, we're, in, we're in hot water right now. Heal the breaches thereof. We got holes everywhere, so much so that the earth shakes. Verse 3, you have showed your people hard things. You have made us to drink the wine of astonishment. In other words, the, the concept here is, Lord, we're, we're kind of like uh, the, the person who's, who's drunk and then somebody kind of just slaps them, and, and it, you're like, oh my gosh, what have I done? Where am I? What's going on? That's the idea here that he's conveying here. When David gets back, it's like a slap in the face. It's like, Lord, you've, you've said some hard things. So apparently some prophets came or somebody came and said, David, the kingdom's been doing this while you've been gone, and this is why you're in trouble right now. And David's going, this is a mess. Verse 4, you have given a banner to them that fear you, that it may be displayed because of the truth, that your beloved may be delivered. Lord, you gave us something to cling to. You gave us hope. Apparently a prophet had said, listen, if you guys repent and you do this, then God will come back and he'll restore you. And so, verse 6, God has spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and meet out the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead's mine, Manasseh's mine, Ephraim. And it lists all these other places. Edom will I cast out with my, out of my shoe, verse 8. So, all these places here where he says, God comes to him and says, listen, David, I gave you victory after victory after victory after victory, and if you'll just turn back to me, if you guys will turn back to me, I'll take care of Edom too. And so, again, we don't know what happened, but somehow the Edomites invaded Israel, and they, they were winning, and Israel was in a bad, bad spot. So much so that verse 9, David says, who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me into Edom? David says, Lord, I don't, I don't know how to do the, win this fight. I, I don't know how to turn this around. And so he calls out. In verse 5, he had said, save with your right hand and hear me. Lord, this is my prayer. Lord, who's going to lead us to victory here? Not us. Verse 10, will not you Oh God, which has had hads to cast us off, which you had in the past cast us off. And you, oh God, which did not go out with our armies. Apparently Joab went down, and yeah, he killed 12,000, but they were still losing. And so this is where David's fame begins to come from. Israel's in massive trouble. And instead of trying to figure it out on his own, David cries out to the Lord. Verse 11, give us help from trouble, for vain is the help of man. Apparently, they had been looking to themselves. Someone had. And David, David says, That's, I, I'm not looking to that now. And then in verse 12, he says, through God we shall do valiantly, for he it is that shall tread down our enemies. And so David sought the Lord. And again, we don't get the details of the battle, but God gave them an overwhelming victory. And the reason that this made David famous is because this is when all the other nations around Israel started to realize David was special because the Lord was with him. That David was different than other kings they'd experienced, other nations they'd had experience with. You know, it's funny, if we just read chapter uh, 8 all by itself, we can read it and easily think, man, David's a dude you don't want to mess with. I mean, he's a, he's a general of generals. This guy, he's on the rampage, man. He's creating a little empire here as if Israel's military was some kind of invincible force. 
But remember, that's not what the word preserved means, and that's what it says here in verse 14. And he put garrisons in Edom. So Edom, throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and all they of Edom became David's servants. But look at what it says at the end. And the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. The same phrase, same word, rescued, saved, delivered. All these situations, David, the odds were never in his favor, but every time God rescued them. He was the one who won the battles. Through our God we shall do valiantly, for he it is that shall tread down our enemies. That's what David concluded at the end of this psalm. Lord, who's going to get us into Edom? Who's going to fix the situation? Is it not you, O Lord? Will not you help us who had cast us off? We return to you. Lord, will you return to us? And the Lord did. Psalm 60 verse 12 needs to be our marching orders and how we're going to tackle every, every battle that we find ourselves in. Through our God, we shall do valiantly. On our own, we shall fall on our face. <laughs> Through our God, though, we shall do valiantly, for it, he it is that shall tread down our enemies. When the enemy is overwhelming you, you look to the Lord. Don't try to fix it yourself. Well, verse 15, we see here kind of a, an organization of David's uh, court, and we get the explanation of who his closest advisors were. It says in verse 15, and David reigned over all Israel, and David executed judgment and justice unto all his people. One of those words means justice, you know, the idea of, of you know, true justice, the idea of not uh, treating other people differently because they had more money or because they had more clout or whatever. It was true justice. The other word means honesty, righteousness, integrity. David had many weaknesses and many failures. But he was a good king because for the most part, he sought to be a faithful servant to God's people. Verse 16, and Joab the son of Zeriah was over the host. He was the general. David keeps trying to fire him, but he keeps finding ways to win the position. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ehilud, it says he was the recorder. He was the official record keeper or the clerk. He was, you know, if you ever watched... Um, um, uh, VeggieTales Esther, and you know, and you got uh, Larry as the cucumber taking all the records, you know, at, while Nebuchadnezzar's got his sleeping cap on, you know, that's what this guy was. So, <laughs> Zadok the son of Ahitub and Ahimelech the son of Abiathar were the priests. That's going to become important later on. Why do we have two high priests? They're both from different lines. One is from the line of Eli, and the other one is from a different line from the family of Aaron. Remember, God cursed the line of Eli. At some point, that line is going to come to an end, and we will see that as we move through uh, 2 Samuel and into 1 Kings. So we're just introducing who they are here, Zadok and Abiathar. Sariah, it says here, was the scribe. This is the guy in charge of military records. It's probably where we got all this information in this chapter from. Verse 18, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, he was over both the Cherethites and the Pelethites. That's interesting. These are two Philistine groups who fought for David. David had an influence on the Philistines when he was there with them. And so after he conquered Philistia, these two groups of mercenaries said, we want, we want to work for you now. We like you. We want to work for you. And so this guy was in charge of them. And then David's sons, it tells us they were chief rulers. It just means royal advisors. Now, we come to chapter 9, and we see that in chapter 8, God kept his promise. So now David's going to have an opportunity to keep his promise that he made to Jonathan. And we're going to find out here, will David be after God's heart? Will he reflect God's heart that God showed to Kim? In verse 1, 
And David said, is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? The word there, kindness, is that Hebrew word chesed, and it is the Hebrew equivalent of agape. It means loyal love, unwavering devotion, unfailing kindness. What loyal love is he talking about here, that I might show loyal love because of Jonathan? Well, we have to go back to 1 Samuel to understand. 1 Samuel chapter 20. 1 Samuel chapter 20. And this is when David has to leave Jonathan because, John, remember, Jonathan goes back and he says, I'll find out if my dad really wants to kill you. And, uh, and, of course, that's when Saul tries to kill Jonathan because he thinks he's in cahoots with David. And so, verse 14, this is the promise that Jonathan and David make to each other. And you shall, Jonathan speaking here, and you shall not only while yet I live show me the kindness of the Lord that I die not, that we're not going to be at war even though my father's trying to kill you. But also you shall not cut off the, your kindness from my house forever. No, not even when the, Lord, not when the Lord has cut off the enemies of David, everyone from the face of the earth. And so Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, let the Lord even require it at the hand of David's enemies. So Jonathan makes a covenant. He says, David, I'm going to support you. And David, I would ask you not to wipe out my family when you become king. <clears throat> New kings normally handled the family of an old rival by wiping out anyone who could claim the throne. Many likely expected that David would do that with any of Saul's surviving family members. And so it's totally counterculture here for David to ask the question, are there any left from Saul's family that I can show him loyal love because of Jonathan? You know, it's interesting David makes this agreement with Jonathan, makes this covenant with him. Jonathan's dead now. David doesn't passively keep his promise by just going, well, I just won't harm anybody from Saul's house. David actively searches out any surviving family members of, of Saul to show them love. Verse 2. And there was of the house of Saul, family of Saul, a servant whose name was Ziba. And when they had called him unto David, the king said unto him, Are you Ziba? And he said, Your servant is he. And the king said, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God unto him? Isn't that an interesting phrase? Not just my kindness, but the kindness of God. The kindness that God has showed me. The kindness that God shows to us. Is there not anyone surviving that I can show the kindness of God unto them? And Ziba said unto the king, Well, Jonathan still has a son, which is lame on his feet. And the king said unto him, Where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So then King David sent, and he fetched him, Jonathan's son, out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Ziba, he was probably a master servant in Saul's family, um, probably responsible for the finances and a lot of other things. Uh, and so this is why, you know, David says, is there anybody? And someone says, well, I think Saul's master servant's still alive. And so they bring him in to interview him. He says, do you know, I mean, I know that we just fought a civil war, but do you know if any of them are still alive? I mean, I know they killed Ishbosheth. Is anybody left? And Ziba says, yeah, Jonathan's got a son. He's crippled, though. He's, he's lame. His feet, he can't walk. And the king says, where is he? 
You know, Ziba, he probably may have even thought to himself, David just wants to wipe out whatever's left. It's possible that he's just very willing to give up of any, any of Saul's living family to show his loyalty to David, or it's possible he trusts David. Either way, he tells him where one of, David's, where one of Saul's uh, grandsons is. He's in the house of Machir. Machir is a man from the tribe of Manasseh with land on the other side of Jordan. That's where, remember, that's where Ishbosheth kind of had his base of operations. And he's living in Lodabar, which is a city just south of the Dead Sea on the other side of the Jordan. And uh, King David, you know, he, he fetches him. And the reason is because he, he can't walk, you know. During the Civil War, this guy Machir loved Saul's family, took care of uh, Mephibosheth. And so when David sends someone to bring Mephibosheth to Jerusalem, Mephibosheth figures it's over for him. He figures he's a dead man. Verse 6. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, make sure it points that out, was come unto David, he fell on his face. Not exactly an easy thing for someone who can't get back up to do. He's in a bad spot. And he says he did reverence, which means he bowed down deeply to the ground. He didn't just get on his knees. I mean, he got on his face with his face to the ground, arms outstretched, bowing before David. I love what David says to him. Mephibosheth, is that you? And he answers, behold thy servant. I love when David says his name because it reminds me of when Jesus asked the, the demoniac's name. Remember? The guy comes out and he's all, Jesus, you come before our time, throw us into the pit. You know? And, 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 and you know, Jesus doesn't, you know, you know, he doesn't talk to the demons, he talks to the guy. He goes, what's your name, man? When's the last time anybody asked this guy's name? You know, whenever anybody talked about him, he said he's the demoniac, you know. They, so much, he was so crazy, they chained him out there. And he had broken the chains. He was so demon-possessed. What's your name? It's probably the first time somebody treated him like a human being in a long time. This guy comes in, he's thinking he's dead. David's going to kill me. I'm it. I'm the last one he's got to wipe out. And he falls on his face. He just says his name, Mephibosheth. I know your name. I know your name. I'm not just a thing to expunge, to preserve my throne. You're someone God made. You're my best friend's son. And when he says his name, he says, Behold, your servant. I'm loyal, David. I don't want the throne. I'm your servant. Whatever you want, I'll do it. David quells all that fear immediately. He says unto him, fear not. How many times do we see the Lord come onto the scene and those are the first words out of his mouth? Fear not. For I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan your father's sake. And I'll restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat bread at my table continually. David puts feet to his commitment, to his words. 
You don't have to hide anymore, Mephibosheth. Gabeah, your father's land, it's all yours again, all of it. And you'll be my guest of honor at every feast that we have. And you know, that is the kindness of God. Because that's exactly what Jesus did for you and me. I was lame, unable to rescue myself from certain doom. But Jesus didn't want to expunge me. He wanted to bless me beyond all I deserved. And he elevated me, gave me a home. He gave me a position at his table. As you can imagine, Mephibosheth is shocked. He bows himself again to the ground and he says, what is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I am? The word there, look, it's, in, it's interesting. It's hard to translate into English. It means to go a different direction. I mean, obviously, if you're going to go a different direction, you've got to look in that direction first. So that's why they translate it this way. But that you would look at me differently than everyone else does. But what am I? What is your servant that you would look at me differently? Who's everyone else considers a dead dog. A dog is a phrase used back then, a term of very low status. Like if you want to insult somebody, you call them a dog, you know? Um, like it's not, what up, dog? Not like that, right? It's the opposite of that, okay? So being a dead dog, well, that's even lower than a dog. There was far less compassion for those who had physical disabilities back then. Most were considered cursed. I mean, we get the best example of that from Jesus' wonderful disciples. Here they go up, they march up, they climb up the stairs, they go into the temple, they worship the Lord, they're having this great day, Jesus is teaching, then they come out on the southern steps and they notice this guy who's blind, they're like, hey, there's a blind guy who's begging every day, and they say, hey, Jesus, which guy sinned, this guy or his parents that he's this way? Jesus is way nicer than I am because that's when I push them all down the steps. <laughs> Let's see how it feels for you being crippled. <laughs> As they're falling down, who sinned, you know? <laughs> that's how you're reviewed. You're cursed. Either something horrible you did or something horrible your family did. He's a dead dog. In addition to that, he has no resources to defend himself. I mean, it's shown by the fact that David can just fetch him. He can't go anywhere. He's literally in the worst possible position a person could be before the king. But you know, these words are familiar to us just in the previous chapter. When God says, David, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to do all this for you. The Messiah is going to come from your line. Your son's going to build me a temple. I'm going to do all these things for you. And David is just dumbfounded. And in 2 Samuel 7, 18, then went King David in and he sat before the Lord and he said, who am I, O Lord God? And what's my house that you've brought me this far? David Mephibosheth experienced the mercy and the grace of David's loyal love, just as David had experienced the mercy and grace of 
the Lord's loyal love. And if we want to have hearts that are after God, if we want to be those who have hearts, our desire needs to be to be those who keep our promises and who show mercy and grace to the undeserved. Do you do that? Do you keep your promises like the Lord does? Keep your commitments. And do you show mercy and grace to the undeserved? Now, verse 9. Then the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and he said unto him, because he can't tell Mephibosheth to do this, he can't work the land. He says, I have given unto your master's son all that pertained to Saul and to all his family. Therefore, you and your sons and your servants, you will till the land for him, and you'll bring in the fruit so that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread always at my table. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants, so he, this is why I say he's probably a master servant for King, for King Saul. He's got a, he's got a, a group of guys that, that he works with, and David says, now you're going to work for, for Mephibosheth. You're going to do the same thing. And Ziba, he said to the king, according to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so shall your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table as one of the king's sons. And isn't that what Jesus did for us? In Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 17, we have not been given the spirit of bondage to fear again, but we have given the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. And if sons of God, then heirs, and heirs of God, and joint heirs with Jesus. That's what he does to Mephibosheth. He makes him a joint heir. He makes him like one of his sons. Same thing that Jesus does for us. That same exact love. And so, verse 12 tells us how that story ends. And so Mephibosheth, he had a young son whose name was Micah. It says Micha here, but his name is Micah. And all that dwelt in the house of Ziba, they were servants unto Mephibosheth. And so Mephibosheth, he decides to live in Jerusalem. He says, I want to hang out with David more. <laughs> and why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you want to be with David more when he treats you like this? For he did eat continually at the king's table, and he was lame on both his feet. He still needed the king every day. He still needed his king. still couldn't do anything on his own in the same way that we still need our king. I find it fascinating that his son Micah is mentioned here. He's named here because First Chronicles lists his descendants, this guy Micah's descendants, as leading men in the tribe of Benjamin all the way up until Nebuchadnezzar captures Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? Because what we see here, because of David's kindness, is that Saul's family, which should have been wiped out by the Lord and by David, just by the way things should be done, that family doesn't just survive. Saul's family goes on, his descendants, to experience the blessings of God because of David's grace because of the Lord's grace. And so tonight, we'll finish a little early. Maybe you've made some lame decisions in your life. Maybe you've rebelled against God like Saul did. And when we do that, does that mean we miss out on some of the blessings we could have had then because of those bad decisions? Sure. But God still can and wants to bless your life because His loyal love for you never fades. I want to read to you 1 
Corinthians chapter 13 one more time. And I want you to think of the fact that love here, God is love, and therefore we can put His name in front of every single one of these things in 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8. It starts off by saying, love suffers long. It's patient. God is patient. God, He is kind. He does not envy. His love, God, it does not vaunt itself. and it does not brag on Himself. It's not puffed up or arrogant. He does not behave Himself unseemly. It means rudely. Love does not seek her own. God does not seek his own. He does not seek his own. He would have never went to the cross if he sought his own. Love is not easily provoked, neither is the Lord. Love keeps no account, keeps no records of evil. The Lord washes away all of our sin. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. God's not okay with sin. He rejoices in the truth. And yet, we see here that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. God bears all things, believes all things. He keeps working in us, hopes all things. He endures all things. And here it is, love never fails. The Lord will never stop loving you and me. He will remain loyal to us to the end. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand. Lord, what a beautiful picture we have here in David's faithfulness to his promise, his loving kindness to Mephibosheth. And Lord, he gave that out because, Lord, he had first experienced it from you. Lord, it says that we love you because you loved us first, and part of loving you back means loving others. And so, Lord, tonight I pray that you would give everyone here in the hearing of my voice a greater awareness of your love, a greater awareness of all those attributes you read about in 1 Corinthians 13 of what you're like. Lord, you're kind, you're patient. No, you don't rejoice in iniquity, but Lord, you bear all things. You keep working in us no matter what, and you never fail. Your love for us never fails. We thank you for that. And Lord, in turn, we say we want to love you back. You want to show that same undeserved kindness to others, Lord, that same unfailing devotion that you've shown to us, we want to give it to others. So fill us with your spirit, Lord. Fill us with the fruit of the spirit, which is love. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.